Hello, this is Joe and TJ, and we are the Schoolhouse 302, and we want to welcome you back to Focus Ed for Season 4. We are truly excited. Focus Ed is a collaborative project with the University of Delaware, the Delaware Department of Education, and the two of us, Joe and TJ, at the Schoolhouse 302. TJ, tell our audience a bit more about Focus Ed. Absolutely. Focus Ed is a podcast that gets recorded with a live audience. We do 14 episodes every season. We're in season four, but you can find season one, two, and three on our site at theschoolhouse302.com. It's a professional development experience for anyone who wants to attend, and then we blast it out from our site. We interview great leaders, authors of popular books, and experts in teaching, learning, and leading so that you can lead better and grow faster in your school or district. Thank you for listening to Focus Ed, and we hope you'll join us live. Hello, everyone. Each episode of Focus Ed, we invite expert guests to join us. And this episode, we have Julie Stern. Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. I'm so excited to be here. Absolutely. We are thrilled to have you on Focus Ed. This month, we are totally focused on learning that transfers, more specifically, the types of curriculum changes that we need for students today to thrive in a world for tomorrow. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Julie? Sure thing, Joe. Thanks for that. Julie Stern has nearly two decades of experience facilitating adult learning and feels lucky to partner with educators to take their practice to the next level. She's passionate about synthesizing the best of education research into practical tools that support educators in breaking free from the industrial model of schooling and moving toward teaching and learning that promotes sustainability, equity, and well-being. She's a four-time best-selling author of Learning That Transfers, Visible Learning for Social Studies, The On Your Feet Guide to Learning Transfer, and Tools for Teaching Conceptual Understanding, Elementary and Secondary. She's a certified trainer in Visible Learning Plus and Concept-Based Curriculum and Instruction. She's a James Madison Constitutional Fellow and taught social studies for many years in Washington, D.C. and her native Louisiana. Julie moves internationally every few years with her husband, a U.S. diplomat, and her two children. Okay, Julie, we want to jump right in for our audience, both our live audience and our audience listening in today to the Produce podcast. Our listeners really want to know about learning that transfers, but we want to start simple. What does that mean? When you say learning that transfers, I don't want that concept to get lost on the audience. Let's start there with a definition of learning that transfers. What do you mean by that? For sure. For sure. I mean, very simply, it's applying our learning to a new situation. So it's essentially anything other than recall. If our students simply remember something very specific, I wouldn't call that transfer. Sometimes people talk about transfer as transfer from working memory to long-term memory. And that's not the way that I speak. I talk about it. I mean, that's still important. And I'm actually writing another book really about how do we get kids to go from their working memory to their long-term memory. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about students encountering a situation that they've never seen before. And there's a spectrum of similar transfer to more sort of different or dissimilar transfer. But when students encounter a situation they've never seen before and they know how to apply what they've learned already to that new situation, that's transfer. Julie, let's dig into that a little bit 
and thinking about even like planning and preparation, a lot of our listeners, our teachers, and also administrators who are looking to support teachers, where would they begin to start to plan something like this? If they have to start with foundational knowledge or, you know, they're thinking, you know, how do I get to that transfer piece? You know, I still have other stuff to cover. Like, how do they approach this with the right mindset of, you know, thinking I'm going to plan my lessons transfer away? You know, most teachers, the vast majority of teachers are already have everything that they need in order to emphasize transfer more. And that is the key to transfer are organizing concepts. So my first two books were about conceptual understanding, but really all of that means is does the idea transfer to multiple situations? And almost everything we do in mathematics is a concept. Almost everything we talk about in English language arts, like word choice and even character, plot, setting, all of those are transferable concepts. A lot of the words we use in science are concepts. I'd say the one area that we often have to be the most careful about is history, because government is conceptual. When we talk about you know, monarchy versus democracy, all of those are concepts. But when we're talking about history, we often remain at the factual level. If we're studying ancient history, you know, you guys probably remember the Mayans, the Incas, you know, those are the, the things that we study. So oftentimes in history, we have to make sure that we're thinking in transferable ideas, such as social structures, religion, which even when we're teaching history, we still talk about those. The first shift that we can easily make is make sure those concepts that are transferable are at the heart of our units, are at the heart of our instruction. And so often the details, the discrete skills, you know, like adding to 10, if for instance, if we're doing kindergarten or something like that, those discrete skills are at the heart of what teachers focus on. And so the first shift that I like to ask teachers to make is make sure that the concepts are at the heart, that that's what we're really emphasizing in our classroom, that we're asking students to think about those concepts, that we're presenting new situations for them to find those concepts. So as my quick example of if we're saying discrete skills, such as addition facts, we want students to understand what is addition. We want students to understand what is place value. And we do a lot of that stuff already. And so it's really just making sure that, for instance, place value is at the heart of early childhood uh, mathematics. Uh, and so really making sure that those transferable ideas are what we're spending the most of our time talking about. And they are the heart of everything that we do in the classroom. You've hit on this a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about what it isn't? What people mm -hmm. should look for and say, that's not it. We're not there yet when we're trying to work with teachers to improve their practice. Great question. Gosh, I that would be a great sort of blog post. So thank you for that, that idea, because I think it's a lot of things of what it's not. So to make sure that you're teaching students and what you're focused on transfers to multiple situations to make sure that it is, it is what, what we're looking for here. And so what it's not is something that is isolated to one specific time and place it's not helping students to be able to apply that learning to a new situation. So for instance, just going back to history, if we're just studying World War II and we're focused only on the details of World War II and we're not ever asking students, how do these ideas apply to today? How did they apply to another war? If we're not ever asking our students, how do these ideas apply to a completely new situation? Then it's not conceptual learning. It's not learning that will transfer. Julie, along those same lines about what it is not, 
have you seen in your travels and you work with a lot of different schools and districts and teachers and administrators, you know, have you seen some common errors or not so much what it is, but these common mistakes that you see in a classroom and also that can be remedied pretty fast? Great question. I think the big common error is sort of presenting established knowledge. By that, I mean knowledge that humans have already discovered and that we agree upon. Presenting that as if it's just a done deal and we're telling it to students. I really want teachers to think about how are we getting students to think deeply about the discipline, think deeply about what is mathematics? What is the purpose of literature? And so for instance, One thing I see a lot is teachers will say, okay, I can't mix genres. This is secondary English. I see this a lot. They'll say like, I do genre studies. I teach short stories for a unit. I teach poetry for a unit. I teach novels for a unit. Or even you see this a lot in elementary. You see we're doing scary stories. That's what we're doing for a unit. And we're doing genre studies. And the focus, you could just say, okay, let's make sure we're transferring across scary stories. All scary stories sort of have these attributes and we can transfer them across different situations. But sometimes I pause and I ask teachers whenever they say things like, Julie, I can't bring in a poem or a song or even a political cartoon because right now we're looking at scary stories. (laughs) And I'll say to them, what's your ultimate goal? for students is your ultimate goal. Like what is the point of literature? What is the point of genre? The point is for us to come alive when we read literature. The point is for us to read literature that speaks to us where we can empathize. The point is to expand our worldview. And so a lot of times I kind of, I'm kind of like that big picture thinker. I come in and I say, back up. What is your long-term goals for your students? And make sure that that is really at the forefront, we often get in the weeds in the, and I totally get it (laughs) in the day to day instruction, we get into the weeds of what is it that is then on the next test? What is the next standard that I have to teach? But really just wanting to ensure that our students have a love of learning and that they are really thinking deeply about, you know, what is the point of all of this? And so I would say, you know, go back to your question. That's one common thing that I see. I wouldn't say sort of error, but a common thing that gets in the way when teachers almost get so bogged down in what they feel like students need to know that they miss some of the beauty of what it means to learn, what it means to read, what it means to explore science, you know, all of those things. So just not lose sight of that. Thanks for that, Julie. It does speak to what gets in the way. A lot of our thinking and even traditional planning would get in the way of this type of, I guess, curriculum structure or content delivery structure. Can you also talk about the shift in the teacher and the student roles? Like, what's the difference in this when we do this right? What position does the teacher take and the student take that we might see more in that traditional approach to curriculum and content delivery? Great question. So the biggest shift, I'll start with the student because that's most important. The biggest shift for the student is to go from fact and skill collector, (laughs) like that would be in a more sort of traditional model, to a pattern seeker. So if we are presenting multiple situations for students to transfer their learning, we want them to see the pattern. We show them, here's what happened in World War II. Here's what happened in the Cold War. Here's what happened today with maybe Russia, Ukraine. And students are saying, you know what I'm noticing? I'm noticing a pattern. 
And so students really being pattern seekers, being the type of thinkers to look past the superficial features of a situation and see the deeper meaning, that's what we want to build with our students. And the shift for teachers is to go from sort of source of knowledge, which luckily has already happened because of the web. I mean, we're living through, you know, one of the greatest technological developments in history of humans. And because the internet is there, teachers and books are no longer the source of knowledge and the source of information. And so we become more like a designer of powerful learning experiences and a curator of resources that students can access of interesting situations where students can apply their learning to new situations. Well, just to understand this concept a little more, you know, something I'm thinking about as you're speaking, the whole notion of like pattern seeking, why do you, you know, believe that be more beneficial? Because you also tied in skills. So I could see some, I get the, the fact piece, definitely, but you threw in skills as well versus pattern seekers. Where do you see the separation between those two? And why is that so beneficial for kids? You guys are just giving me the best questions. I have to give you kudos for <laughs> you did your homework. I would just yesterday was talking about the difference between concepts and skills. It's as simple as this. When students are doing the skill, it's a skill. When they're thinking about how they did the skill, to me, it's a concept. So for instance, like if students are solving equations, we don't want them to just solve the equation. Okay, of course we do, but we want them to think about why they're solving the equation. So I want them to think about solving. I want them to think about multi-step equations. And I want them to articulate to themselves and to their peers and to their teacher what they understand about the relationship between sort of variables and equations and solving multi-step equations. And what's the difference between solving a one-step equation versus a multi-step equation? What do you have to consider when it's multi-steps? So when students are thinking about the skill, to me, it's a concept. It's as simple as that. And that applies to everything. If students are playing chess, it's a skill. But we all know from incredible research that the best chess players think about chess, that they don't just play it mindlessly. So when they're thinking about strategy, position, even sort of offense and defense and power and force, they do all those things. The grandmasters, I don't know much about chess. So uh, those who are listening, maybe you're like, she's getting it wrong. But uh, the point is you are thinking about the skills of chess. And to me, those are concepts. And it even applies to things like resilience, social emotional learning. When students are being resilient, that's a skill. When they're thinking about resilience, when they're thinking about a time in their life when they showed resilience, when they're thinking about the next time they come across an obstacle, how are they going to you know, reach into their toolbox and be resilient? To me, that's a concept. Resilient becomes a concept when they're thinking about how it works out in different situations and when they're planning for future situations. So that's kind of what I mean by pattern seeker, right? Like we, I want kids to, and I do this already with my young kids. I have a six and an eight-year-old, so first grade and third grade, and they are pattern seekers because I'm constantly asking them how every situation in their lives teach them these bigger principles, these bigger ideas. And I want them to see like when you feel pressure from your math teacher to go really fast, like that is your, you feel it in your body. And I want you to think about the strategies that you have when you feel pressure, what strategies do you have? You breathe deeply, you know, in the next time 
someone on the playground makes fun of them. They know, okay, here's a situation that's stressful. I've got strategies to use there. So that's what I mean by pattern seeker, really looking at all the situations and even cartoons, right? Like when they're, <laughs> when they're watching TV, pop culture, they're able to say, oh my gosh, I see the pattern in this TV show that I'm watching. I'm listening to the lyrics of songs. Sometimes high school students will say, you like got into my brain and now I can't undo it because now every time I'm, I see a movie, I'm like thinking about these deeper patterns and I'm like, yes, that's the goal is to really sort of see those deeper patterns. Julie, there's so many different directions to go in here. It's a different way of thinking about the subject matter. And I wonder if you could connect that to and tell us if it's connected to the concept of disciplinary literacy and mm -hmm. thinking differently about subject matter. How's that connected to what you've been saying here? Or is that something different? That's totally connected to what I'm saying. So chapter three of, of my latest book is about, was sort of entitled Disciplinary Literacy. And that's the first shift that I've been talking about so much, which is instead of I teach mathematics, I teach students how to think like a mathematician, how to sort of look for the concepts in the new situation. It's why word problems are so tricky to students who don't have that conceptual understanding because they can't think like a mathematician. They can't sort of set up the problem if it's embedded in words because they're still sort of thinking in a more rote way. And so that's why we call it disciplinary literacy. And we have like a little chart in our book where it's like, when you think about your subject that you teach as a subject, you tend to kind of explain it to students like it's a done deal and they just need to memorize it. When you think of your academic area as a discipline, you think about like a term that I love to use that's a sort of big term is cognitive apprenticeship. You think about how your students are almost like an apprentice of thinking. So you do a lot different type of moves rather than, hey, kids, watch me solve this problem. You know, this is it. Do you see? Now do it yourself. Instead of that, I would show a really interesting mathematical problem that is a bit confusing, like a word problem. And I would think aloud. I want to expose my thinking to the students. I want them to see how someone who is well-versed in the discipline, math, science, social studies, music, PE, is able to say, okay, when I encounter a new problem or a new situation, here's what goes through my mind. First, I do this. Then I do that more what we're trying to do is sort of teach our students those mental moves rather than sort of rotely applying what we showed them on the board. Well, I'm just going to say, I'm glad this is recorded. So I can go back and listen to it about 30 more times. You got my brain going so much because just for the audience and listeners, one thing that I've noticed in it prior to being a superintendent, being a director of assessment accountability, students really struggle with the heart of algebra portion of the PSAT and the SAT, especially the non-calculator portion, which requires them to think about the problem. So it actually gives them the solution. And then they have to think about what actually would the equation be to get to this result. And that speaks to everything that you're saying right now. You hit the nail on the head with, you know, a real tragedy in the way we teach mathematics right now. Gosh, I heard a mom the other day asking her daughter, like how to calculate a tip. And her daughter had to have been in high school, if maybe, maybe lower, like ninth or 10th grade. But she couldn't, her mom was like, okay, here's a quick way you can calculate 20%. Here's how you can calculate a tip. So if the bill is $60, what's 10% of 60? And the daughter was like a deer in headlights. I mean, she couldn't do it. And that's, you know, 
what is happening that we can't do basic quantitative reasoning? I mean, just very basic. And we know that. We know that to be true. Uh, most of us don't have to use mental calculations that much. We have our phones. I'm very guilty of breaking out my phone and using the calculator feature every single time. But really, the goal, I think, there is to emphasize more quantitative reasoning, more sort of mental calculations and just reasoning. How do you set up the problem exactly what you, you named on the PSAT? So when I'm working with secondary math teachers, they kind of get nervous because I talk about authentic learning and they're like, Julie, and, or they're like, what is the purpose of math? Like, what if, what if it doesn't have like a real world purpose? They'll start to get nervous about that. And I'll say, listen, all of the disciplines, like if to get really philosophical on you guys, but math teachers love this. If I go here, I'm like, all of the disciplines, math, science, music, art are a way of seeing the world. And math in particular lets us see things or lets us think about things that we can't see. Math lets us think about things that we can't see. And that's beautiful in and of itself. And I also say to the secondary math teachers, I'm like, come on, you guys. I know at least once a month, probably more regularly, somebody in your life says something crazy that's like faulty mathematical thinking, faulty quantitative reasoning. And they're like, they kind of smile like, yep. And I'm like, I don't care if it's your cousin, your uncle, whatever, like take those moments and bring those into the classroom and just get your students like thinking, even if it's not quote unquote in the standards, can we just make sure that we review with all of our eighth graders, what's 10% of 60 and they should be able to quickly give you the answer. And so I think really kind of that sort of mathematical talk, more ideas, more sharing is very popular among all the math gurus out there, mathematical discourse. That's totally aligned to what I'm saying. It's getting the students to think about the math. That's fantastic. The one thing that I took away from that, that I think everybody can relate to, no matter what your subject matter is, is to get kids to think about the discipline through that subject matter as a lens for the world. And that does change the way we teach so that it's not about remembering stuff, but actually looking at the world in a different way. And that's a much bigger purpose. And I think that matters a lot to listeners. We're going to switch to some focus ed uh, leadership questions. But before we do, I can't help it since Joe brought up the SAT. Can you tell us how we approach assessments a little bit differently with this concept of learning that transfers? Because that has to change too. Yeah. So, I mean, the short answer is the assessments are the floor. They're not the ceiling. So always, always remember that that the assessments are the floor. So if students can't do it, then they're standing in a hole and that's a problem, but they're also not the ceiling. So teaching to the test, there's too much research out there, which all of my books cite that says rote learning doesn't work even on standardized tests, low level standardized tests. So teach within this way intellectually and students will still perform well on those tests. So I would just almost say, don't worry about it. Don't use it as an excuse to say, well, I can't do the way you're talking, Julie, because of this assessment. No, they're the floor. They're not the ceiling. It doesn't mean we can't go beyond there. So just for the purpose of time, that's my short answer, but all of my books have an entire chapter on assessments. So check those out. Julie, along those lines, we definitely recommend your books. We will make sure that they're identified in the show notes as well. Is there a resource that you love to go to that supports teaching and learning or even leadership in schools? 
Well, I want to say, you know, I don't want to be too cheeky, but I want to plug our companion website. It's learningthattransfers.com. It's, it is like some people say, Julie, you gave away the whole book for free on the website, but you'll see there's a link that says resources. And then it says chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. Like it's just every single chapter we've got these resources and teachers will want to live at chapter eight, which is instructional strategies. And so what I did for leaders is based on the work of Jenny Donahue and collective efficacy, I basically just made something it's on my website. It's called collecting student evidence. So how can leaders use that collecting student evidence of learning of conceptual learning and transfer and have conversations with teachers about student work, focus on student work. You know, I don't, I don't care if teachers stand on their head. I want to see evidence that students are thinking conceptually and able to transfer their learning to new situations. Thanks for that. We'll definitely link to that as well in the show notes, learningthattransfers.com. We're going to point the teachers to chapter eight. Besides your own books, which again, we will link in the show notes, are there any books that are go-tos for you that our audience needs to know about? I mean, I'm, I'm really into mindset and just how much our thinking influences our lives. And so, you know, there's so many books out there around that. There's so many gurus who speak about that. I'll point your listeners to a podcast that I love. The person is called Brooke Castillo and the podcast is called the, I think it's called the Life School Podcast. Uh, she's a life coach and she uses just a very simple technique to get you aware of your thinking and how your thoughts, how your reactions to situations can get in your way. And I've got a free course on my website called Goodbye to Overwhelm. So if you want to check that out, it's a free course I made for educators at the turn of 2021. It's called Goodbye to Overwhelm. We can link it in the show notes as well. And it goes through that model, the mental model that basically changed my life. Julie, you're very productive. You know, you have a lot of success getting a little personal, you know, when you work through things like that, you know, identifying your thoughts, working through, are there things you're like, you know what, this really works for me and not making this up, although it may sound like it. I was just listening to a podcast today on that very same topic. They identified if you can't define it, you can't defeat it. And I love that phrase in that, but is there something particular you could share with us? Like, you know, this is something I work on with my thoughts, my reactions, et cetera. Yeah, I think, you know, the phrase that changed my life is from a, an author. So I'm kind of coming back to your other question, an author named Ryan Holiday, who wrote a book called The Obstacle is the Way. And the quote is actually from Marcus Aurelius, who is, was the emperor of Rome, I don't know, 3000 years ago. But the quote is, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. And so now it has become a mantra that even my husband has taken on where he goes to me, Julie, the obstacle is the way. And so just a mantra that is like, okay, when something doesn't go your way, which it won't, that is life. <laughs> Think about how that is now a gift. And it's, it sounds crazy, but I'll just get really personal with you, Joe, since you asked me that. I had postpartum depression with my first son and I was like, it wouldn't go away. The anxiety wouldn't go away. I took, you know, some medicine. I did, I went to therapy. It, like, I just cried all the time. I was super anxious. And I remember one time I was just like, why is this here? Why is this here? And I was like, you know what? You need to soften because everybody in my life who struggled with mental illness, I, I took like a tough love approach. And I think like the Lord, the universe, somebody, whoever was out there was like, you need to face up to this. 
and you need to feel what it feels like. And it, you guys, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but I, it happened to me and I feel like I am much stronger of a person because I went through that. And so even if it's not, you know, the obstacle becomes a way that becomes an opportunity, it allows you to practice virtue. It allows you to have more humility. It allows you to be more empathetic and, and just sort of soften, which is something that I, I could use in my, in my own life. I truly appreciate you being vulnerable, sharing that with people. I think that makes you far more real. And, you know, I, I just slid a note over to TJ. Hey, can I make another comment? Um, I just read Happy Days by mm -hmm. Gabrielle Bernstein, and it's phenomenal. And I read it for my own self, but also to have a more empathetic and compassionate approach as a superintendent to what people may be going through. And she actually in that book reveals her struggle with postpartum depression and how, you know, she is a life coach. She's a guru. And what she had to even own, like, man, I'm supposed to be guiding these people, but I also need a guide at times. So I just wanted to share that. Thank you, TJ, for letting me chime in as well. But uh, that was also, I like to plug her work because it was very powerful. Mm -hmm. And there's always an extra comment from my buddy Joe here, and these guys behind us are going to know that through the principal induction program sessions that we're about to deliver. Julie, this has been fantastic. Lots to unpack with the audience for our listeners, for the live audience today. We really appreciate your time. We're going to link to your books, to your site, to your courses. Is there anything else that you'd like to add for our live audience and those listening at home? I would just say, you know, one of your questions you sent in advance was what does success look like for you in the next three to five years? And I, this is important to say on this particular podcast, it is working with more schools in the United States. I work primarily with schools around the world. They're international schools. They're largely very well off children. And I really, really want to work with more public schools in the United States. So I just wanted to make that plug for you guys to call me up. If you're listening and, you, and this intrigues you, I hope you will call me up. All Julie Stern, folks, we're going to blast this out far and wide. She's ready to work with schools in America, and we're ready to hear her message, learning that transfers. We have to have it in our schools today. Thank you, Julie. Everyone, how about a virtual and a live, thank goodness we're live, round of applause for Julie today. Oh, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the Delaware Academy for School Leadership, the Delaware Department of Education, and the Schoolhouse 302. Don't forget to follow the schoolhouse302.com for podcasts, blog posts, books to read, and more. We'll be back soon with another episode of Focus Ed. Until then, stay focused. Hey, leaders, before you go, one more announcement. We now have available for you our Candid and Compassionate Feedback Masterclass. Really, because of high demand, we are thrilled to offer this. This is a course that we run live and in person all the time, and leaders love it. They learn to give feedback with skills that they can use right away, including better praise to lift and celebrate your team. It's now available in a virtual online format that you can take on your own, self-paced, from the comfort of your office or home. Here's what you'll get. There are 11 lessons with a focus on nine candor cancellations that we wrote in our Candid and Compassionate Feedback book. These are mistakes that leaders make that we don't want you to make anymore. We'll teach you models so that your feedback is meaningful and we'll give you tools necessary to build the culture that you always wanted. Trust us, without these critical skills, 
you're not capitalizing on your own capacity to lead better and grow faster. Go to the site, theschoolhouse302.com, click on shop courses, add this course to your cart and start learning.